Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey, welcome. Welcome to uh, episode 115. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And today we're going to be interviewing Lindsay Lafayette, who's representing the Archaeological Conservancy. And we'll be talking about what it is, how it relates to uh, sites, archaeological sites, and rock art. And uh, it'll be an, an interesting journey. Well, welcome everybody to episode 115, the last one of 2023. And we're uh, honored and blessed to have Lindsay Lafayette from the Archaeological Conservancy on board, who'll be talking to us about uh, what that is and how that relates to, uh, call it cultural resource management or conservation of uh, Native American and historic sites, and uh, how that might even relate to uh, rock art preservation. Lindsay, are you with us? I am, yeah. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sounds, sounds like you're loud and clear. You told me you were com- coming in from an exotic location, correct? Yes, I'm in Nova Scotia, Canada. Wow. On the, the second level of a historic farmhouse. <laughs> that, how fabulous is that? Well, welcome yeah. to uh, the Rock Art Podcast. We've been doing this for about three years. And you're the first person to uh, come on board to talk to us about the Archaeological Conservancy. But before we sort of probe into that, maybe tell us a little bit about how you uh, got involved with the profession of anthropology, archaeology, perhaps the study of Native Americans and uh, cultural resources. Well, I always liked history and I always liked my grandmother's stories about our old family history. And so 
I thought I wanted to be a um, history teacher because I enjoyed history the best. So then when I went to university, I saw, I said I would major in history, but then I saw the archaeology of North American Indians as a, as a class to take. And so I thought, ooh, that sounds so interesting. I'll take that. And then I ended up taking the whole series and then majoring in it. And I found myself with a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology from the Oregon State University there in Corvallis. And after that, I went to France and I dug in a rock shelter in southern France. And I came back and looked for work. So I just became a shovel bum basically for on the East Coast for a little while. And that's where I met my husband, who is from the East Coast of Canada, which is why I'm here today. (laughs) And so just random chance brought us to Nevada in Reno. I got a short-term work with the BLM state office with Pat Barker, and I worked with him for a little while. And when that was over, he and I worked CRM for about three more years, and we decided that we should go, we should get our master's degrees from University of Nevada, Reno in their program in Reno. That's what we did, and we graduated, and then we did CRM for a little while longer, and and then he went on to get his PhD in Wyoming, and I moved to Wyoming with him and worked with the Office of the Wyoming State Archaeologist um, in Laramie for a couple of years, and then we ended up back out in Nevada, and I did CRM again for about 13 years with one company until I got work with the Conservancy, which I feel very lucky to have uh, had the opportunity to work with them. That's quite a um, pedigree, don't you think, in terms of <laughs> the experience that you've had is very broad, both old world, old world and new, uh, extensive work yes. in cultural resource management, historic preservation, different geographies. Yes. Yeah, I've been all over the country. You would mention that your master's thesis Oh, my master's thesis, sure. It was use wear analysis on Great Basin stemmed points. So what I did mm-hmm. was I had replicas made by uh, James Woods there in Idaho, and uh, he made some replica parmans and wind dust and haskets. And then I hafted them onto spear points, half of them onto spear points and half of them onto knives. And then I, I acquired a deer carcass and I hung it <laughs> with rope in my backyard and uh-huh. um, threw spears at it. And then I looked at the use wear on the spears. And then after, well, after that was done, after I threw the spears at it, then I, I had some hafted as knives and I skinned the deer and cut some meat off the deer. And then I looked at, at the use wear as knives. And then I was able to look at some collections from Cougar Mountain Cave and Last Supper Cave and Hanging Rock Shelter under a microscope. And I compared the use wear on those artifacts with the use wear that I created from the replica stem points that I used in my experiment. And what did you learn? What was the upshot? That uh, I think that stem points were used for both knives and spears. And for throwing atlatls. Yeah. kind of um, high impact throwing and as well as knives. Yeah. Well, that's pretty exciting. No one had done that before, had they? No one had done that kind of level of replicative experiments that you had. That is a, an incredible project and one that's uh, certainly very, very valuable and interesting. Those um, Parmans and Windus points are uh, paleo Indian, are they not? And they go 
go way back in time. I think the wind dust goes back to like 11,500 and Parman about the same or earlier. Yeah, I haven't, um, I haven't looked into the current research, so I, I don't know exactly when, when, what they date to anymore, but definitely in that ballpark. Yeah. Early, early paleo. Yeah. And that uh, wind dust and Parman are part of that Western stem tradition that we now are finding goes back as much as 16,000, if not even earlier years ago, and is part of that pre-Clovis stratum that has been uh, discovered in Oregon, correct? Yes, in Connolly Caves by uh, yeah. Dr. Dennis Jenkins with uh, U of O at the Oregon Museum there. Munch, I think they call it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very familiar with that because yeah. I, I myself am working on a project project in Oregon. So it's but it's been um, very eye opening in a lot of ways to go out of California and you know and expand my research into Oregon. Similar, but yes, di- yet different. So quite remarkable. So how did you uh, jump from all of that and find your way into the archaeological conservancy? It's because uh, my husband, Jeff Smith, Dr. Jeff Smith, he's a professor at uh, UNR and he did an excavation uh, or he was looking into a place to excavate and it was Leonard Rock Shelter. He needed to know who owned it and he found out it wasn't the BLM. It was uh, privately owned and not only privately owned, but owned by the Archaeological Conservancy, which neither of us had heard of before. Right. And so you have to submit an application in order to work on they're uh, one of their preserves, and then they they have a, a committee look it over over the application, and then if you're approved, field work can go ahead, and, and that is what happened in his case. And so I think he spent a couple of years there in Leonard Rock Shelter and got to know the um, Western field director Corey Wilkins. And uh, later, after the pandemic was over, uh, Corey was looking for a Western field representative, and so he called Jeff to see if any students needed any work. And he said that all of his students were, you know, they were employed. And so he couldn't think of any, but then he said the next day he thought, Hmm, I wonder if Lindsay would like to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so serendipity played a, a nice part in this opportunity. Did it not? Yes, it did. So yeah, I had a, a good lead on, on that uh, job opening. They didn't even advertise it. <laughs> so how did, how did we meet Lindsay, you and I? Well, we rely on people like you to let us know about properties that come up for sale that have significant archaeological resources. And you were one of those people that gave us the heads up and the tip. And you let us know that there was an archaeology site with the rock art. because You like the rock art. And I, you know, you called us up. And so I came and met you uh, at the site and we we looked at it together and, and talked about its significance and Hopefully, we'll be able um, to acquire that site with that that tip. It's for sale, so I hope that uh, it goes through. It'd be sure. a nice uh, it'd be a nice acquisition for for our uh, for the conservancy. Well, let's let's hold it there, and we'll continue this discussion in the next episode. See you in the flip flop, gang. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today 
at shopify.com slash records. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, gang, to uh, segment two of the Rock Art Podcast, episode 115. And we're honored and blessed to have Lindsay Lafayette here representing the Archaeological Conservancy. Lindsay, we were talking about uh, how you got involved with the Conservancy and we were just beginning to discuss when we met and how um, you acquire properties. And I think that would be a good place to start. Do you agree? Um, Well, actually, I was wondering if we could do a little bit of a background of what the Archaeological Conservancy is first before we... Please. um, No, I think that's that's sensible and let's, let's... Let's backpedal a little okay. bit. Exactly. The Archaeological Conservancy is the only nonprofit that preserves archaeology sites on private land. Uh, we preserve historic sites, pre-contact sites, ethno-historic sites. It's been a conservancy since Mark Michael founded it in 1980. So that's, I don't know, is that 43 years now? And we have over uh, 585 sites across the country. And there are offices like the one in Reno, representing the Northeast, the Southeast, the Midwest, the Southwest, and the West in Reno, of course. And and the Western um, office, we are responsible for Oregon, California, Idaho, Washington, and Nevada, those, those preserves we have in that region. And there are 44 archaeological preserves in that region that we are responsible for and that we manage. Okay, so I think that's a little bit of a background on what we do. Um, so we acquire these sites before they're developed or before someone else acquires the land who might want to pot huntage or just, you know, plow it into a field, that kind of thing. So that's how we are preserving these sites. And we generally uh, like to just leave them exactly how they are. The purpose of their preservation is to do archaeology. So if, if you have a plan and um, you're an archaeologist, you can you can give us, uh, submit an application and, and we'll, we will review it and, and see if it meets our our guidelines. And um, if so, then we can do some archaeology on the, on the preserve. Okay. So I think that's interesting because people may be unaware, even, even our listeners, which are all across the, the globe, that in California, there are actually, it's not as common as it might be in, the, in other areas of the country. And maybe it's uncommon there as well to have private lands that contain archaeological sites privately held lands. I know that in most of the Great Basin and Western Mojave Desert in the Eastern California, most of the landscape is owned or managed by the Bureau of Land Management, the National Park Service. Do you uh, find that's the case, uh, Lindsay? Right. Yeah. Along the East Coast, the uh, directors over there, it's a lot different for them because most of 
the land is privately owned, but that's what is unique about the West. So much of it is is uh, owned federally and, and state owned. So getting something on private land, it, you know, you need to know people and you need to, you know, that's why I'm doing public outreach because people need to know that if, if there is something on private land that needs to be protected, then there is a place to contact and, and have it be reviewed to see if, uh, if it can be saved or preserved for into the future. In perpetuity, as you would say. In perpetuity, um, yes. But I did connect with the Archaeological Conservancy earlier in time, several years ago, in fact, to discuss a privately held site that's very, very important. It's a rock art site, but it's one of those rare birds that have ethnographic information in that the native people have a, a robust uh, collection of sacred narratives surrounding the site. And so we know basically from indigenous perspective what the site was used for and what they called the site and how they interpreted it. And then uh, the site falls, uh, you know, for, sort of in the, in the center of a lot of the research that I have done over the years regarding questions relating to rock art function and indigenous symbolism and metaphor, etc. So we were, not, we were not able to acquire that site and we had, have had difficulties connecting with the owner. But that was how my initial, initial relationship began with the Conservancy. Now, another site that the California Rock Art Foundation has visited often was that one in the Central Valley near Visalia. You know that site for its rock art? Yes, I had a chance to visit it in September for the first time. First time. Maybe tell us a bit about, about uh, what you might know about that site, and I can add a few things, perhaps. Well, I believe... It's called Rocky Hill. The Yoku. That's the... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We mentioned it before. Uh, Rocky Hill. I, but I think technically the Conservancy, it's known as the um, J.T. Last Archaeological Preserve in honor. I think he was um, might have been a, a primary donator, uh, donator to the preservation of that site. I uh, don't know a lot about it. I visited it, but... Um, we have a summary written of it, and I, I did look at it before I went, but I believe it's on the lands of the Yokut, the southern Yokut, and it might yes. date back to 2,000 years ago to present. Certainly, and, uh, or, or, or if yeah. not more than that. It's a, um, it's a pictograph site. It's a polychrome pictograph site, rock paintings, and mm -hmm. it, it exhibits uh, indications of sort of the uh, ceremonial and religious metaphors of the Yokuts, and... There are um, tremendously interesting panels that exist, and they're situated all over that hillside of uh, granite. And they're done in you know vibrant colors of yellow, uh, red, white, black. And uh, some represent uh, sort of uh, spiritual beings, animal human figures, etc., etc. But it is a remarkable site and uh, certainly world-class rock art has been uh, preserved thanks to the art. All right. What I thought was unique about it was that it was underneath the rocky overhangs in like little little caves. One of them I had to crouch down and and sit sit down and able so that I could see uh, what was going on on the panel. It was tucked under. So a lot of them there might still be more that we haven't found because they were it was very tucked in and hard to find. Yes, and that that whole that whole area that is very rich in in rock art and to have this particular 
privately held parcel managed and conserved by the Archaeological Conservancy is an enormous blessing to um, the general public and even the academic community for that matter. And then we have uh, Portuguese Bench. Right. Yeah, I had uh, I, I usually try and um, incorporate site visits when I have other business in the area uh, to make the most of my time when I'm traveling. And so while Alan and I were looking at a prospective site to acquire and preserve, there was a nearby preserve that's already within the archaeological conservancies within our preserves of sites. And it's called Portuguese Bench. And um, it was excavated. It's a village site that was excavated in the 1980s by David Whitley, Dr. David Whitley. But there is one uh, panel on a granite boulder, which is kind of not really where the excavations took place. It's uh, further down the hill, uh, just amongst all the ranching buildings. It's, it's also where a historic ranch functioned. Uh, so it's, it's impressive that it, it has survived and that it's on granite when most of the rock art is on um, the basalt that's in that area, right? That, that you're exactly correct. It's, it's very unusual to have uh, a non-basalt uh, rock art canvas for a petroglyph in that area. I guess what is even more remarkable is the kind of shouts Koso uh, in terms of its uh, subject matter and highly representational and naturalistic uh, symbolism. So let's uh, pick this up on the next segment and um, see you on the flip-flop. Welcome back, gang. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, Rock Art Podcast, Episode 115, with Lindsay Lafayette, who's uh, talking about the Archaeological Conservancy, what they do, how they do it, and some of our interesting uh, interrelationships. Lindsay, so we, you introduced me to an enormous panel, a rock art panel, that uh, shocked me, I have to say. It was so surprising to see that. It's about five miles, I think, outside of the Kosos itself, and yet it shouts Koso in, in many ways, and it has uh, really some standard elements, uh, both naturalistic and realistic, on that panel that uh, I've seen uh, regularly occurring in the Kosos themselves. Yeah, well, I was I was glad you were able to see it because um, we haven't had anybody professionally come and, and analyze that rock art. Um, there were, like I mentioned, excavations done there in the 80s, and I haven't read all of everything that's been published or reported on those excavations, but I hadn't seen anything related to the rock art yet. So I was happy to, um, to get an expert's opinion on and what was going on there. But I've, I've uh, read extensively even cited the work of, uh, of uh, Mark Allen and, and uh, other individuals on Portuguese bench in my dissertation. And I knew there was a rock art site there, a panel of, you know, a boulder. It's not mentioned in any of the publications I had run across, uh, two master's theses and any other discussions, no one mentions it. But... On that panel, after post-processing it, there's um, an individual holding a snake. There's snakes at the top. There's a mountain lion. There's a, um, a tortoise and bighorn sheep. And then another very large individual with their um, hands outstretched. What could be an Elko projectile point depiction and uh, several other figures and a smattering throughout the whole 
panel of uh, bighorn sheep, including a, a classic Koso sheep with full front-facing horns and navicular uh, body and flat back. Very uh, characteristic. It's a hallmark of the Koso canon of rock art. And uh, such panels um, are fascinating, and I've uh, had the opportunity to deconstruct and talk about some of those symbols over the course of my career studying Koso rock art. So it was almost like seeing a, a, a new friend coming home. So you must have had a chance to really analyze that after we left with your pictures and, and the de-stretch analysis that you did. Yeah, I did de-stretch. De, de I post-processed it several different ways. And it was amazing how much came out of that image and things that we could see. And you so, think those are dateable, right? Those uh, yeah, images? Yeah, I, 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 I would say... Uh, with some confidence that much of the much of the panel would probably date to the Newberry period, meaning from about uh, AD 1 to about 2000 BC, so about 2000 to 4000 years ago. No doubt. They're, they're just very characteristic of, of the material that's been dated within Koso. That uh, classic form of bighorn sheep begins about 2000 BC and continues proliferates during the later periods and grows to a larger-than-life-size image that appears in the coastal range itself. Yeah, well, that's great that, um, that we were able to preserve that and, and have that information available to you to see. Yes. And then we, um, we had time to look at that uh, bit of a, uh, I don't know if it's enigmatic, but interesting site there at Little Lake. And uh, that has historic uh, materials and even ethnographic materials and prehistoric uh, rock art and historic uh, inscriptions as well. Sort of a real mixture. Yeah, it seems to be a path that has been used, you know, for millennia and into the historic times. It must have been a very important, you know, pathway throughout all time going past that water source there in the desert. Ab absolutely. And what, what was partially shocking to me was you just wandered around and found several new glyph elements that I'd never seen before. And I'd been out there literally dozens of times. You found a series of otlottles and another depiction of a classic Koso bighorn sheep that you yourself had discovered just wandering around the rocks there. <laughs> yeah. And I saw that you recorded it in 1976. I got the site records from, from uh, <laughs> a very, a very primitive, a very primitive rec recordation that was during my my uh, infancy in archaeology. I was working as an intern for the Bureau of Land Management and doing uh, unbelievable amounts of work, living at the Little Lake Hotel and uh, trying to develop a cultural resource management plan to protect the resources. So uh, I have to apologize for sort of the primitive nature of that documentation. <laughs> That's all right. I'm wondering, though, if you're working for the BLM, why you were on uh, private land analyzing, recording those those panels. I guess I guess at the time we didn't know it was private. I guess we, we thought that it was all BLM. And um, they even had me doing a lot of work looking at the Little Lake Ranch itself, even though they knew that was private, because they... They wanted me to, to do a nomination for both what they call Fossil Falls that you didn't see and Little Lake 
as a, a singular nomination, which I did as well. I did a publication. I did my master's thesis on that particular site. And um, uh, the, the Bureau of Land Management owns actually the topmost mesa top of that flow, that basalt flow that exists around Little Lake. So it's sort of a, an intermingled set of private and public landscape. Does that make any sense? Yeah. There's a lot going on in that tiny little spot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, in fact, I'd mentioned this on one of my earlier programs, but uh, a colleague of mine, one of the board members of the California Rock Art Foundation, did his master's thesis on that mesa top there on the uh, BLM land. And what he discovered was uh, hunting blinds and dummy hunters that were being used to hunt the bighorn sheep. And he used uh, state-of-the-art drones and, and uh, you know, three-dimensional mosaics to recreate the landscape and test models regarding the uh, feasibility, intervisibility in the landscape and whether they could, in fact, be used to hunt and slay sheep. Right. I'm sure that um, entire area was being used intensively uh, for a long time. It has a lot of attributes for, for hunting and gathering. And- Given that that's a, you know, a, a freshwater lake in the, in the desert, which is so rare, that would be a, you know, sort of a, a magnet for a variety of occupation act and cultural activities. And it was the same even through historic times where they had a road and a, um, a stagecoach stop all there at Little Lake. They called it Lagunita in the past. And uh, that was the historic Spanish name for the site. That was the uh, ethnographic village of Pagunda that uh, Julian Stewart documented. So uh, back in 1938, he documented there were several different ethnic groups there. Anyways, quite an interesting place. Yes, thanks for showing me. Lindsay, do you have uh, some final comments, conclusions that you would uh, perhaps want to share with the audience? Well, I'm, I'm here tonight. Thank you very much, Alan, for inviting me to uh, promote the Archaeological Conservancy. And we're a nonprofit, so we accept uh, tax de- tax-deductible donations, of course. And, and you can make, have a membership to the Conservancy for, I think it's just $25 a year. And we have a lovely magazine that comes out quarterly which um, you can also find back issues on our website, um, archaeologicalconservancy.org. We run, we raise money through tours. There's a tour coming up in March for the Guatemala Highlands and Copan and in uh, Mexico that is run, you know, with an archaeologist with the tour group as a tour guide. And uh, another one of our representatives will go along as well. And in May, we have a rafting trip on the Yampa River in Utah, um, we'll have a conservancy representative there, as well as uh, an archaeologist um, who works with BLM in the in the region, who who knows about the archaeology and the and the Fremont rock art that that we'll see on the river in that uh, area. I, think, I believe it goes through Dinosaur National Park. It's like a, a five a five day rafting trip, which sounds amazing. Let's see. Um, I guess, I guess one thing that we should make uh, the general public aware of is if they know of an archaeological site it's, it's, that's privately owned or an historic site that needs protection 
and that is is available for sale or could be for sale, they should probably alert you, right? Yes, those are the best tips. I can go on, you know, things like Nev Chris and, and Chris in California and um, the Oregon and Washington equivalents, like at the, the, the archaeological databases. And I, I find archaeology sites that look great and they're on private land. And I write I, I write letters to the landowners. And um, but more often than not, I do not hear back. So <laughs> if I don't have that tip of uh, someone who, you know, is interested in selling their land anyway and wants to preserve the archaeology on their land that's that's the best kind of tip to have otherwise i'm just kind of sending a letter out into space it feels like (laughs) trying to trying to see if people are, are interested in preserving their land and we're not pressuring anybody to sell their land we're very patient we can answer questions you know people don't have to sell it right away they can they can put it in their will they can can live on their land live on the land uh, while we own it i think it's called a life estate so you can you can still sell the land and live on it and and you can be on the committee that makes decisions about that property after uh, we acquire it so there's lots of options to be had and go ahead and and ask us questions and see how we can work together to to preserve uh, archaeological resources well, Lindsay, it's a pleasure connecting with you, and I'm honored that you had a chance to uh, share the joy of doing the work for the Archaeological Conservancy. And uh, all you people out there in podcast land, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. Okay, happy holidays. Talk to you in 2024. God bless. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.